St. John's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 12. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Amen. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. There he was standing within the temple courts. He'd made a bit of a scene overturning the tables of the money changers, driving the traders out of the temple with a whip. Those listening to him generally assumed that he was referring to the temple, the physical building in which they were standing. Consequently, their incredulity was understandable. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. What do you mean you're going to raise it again in three days? And actually, the temple had been 46 years in the building and they hadn't finished it yet. Best guess was it was started in about 19 BC. 46 years on brings us to AD 28, which is where John locates the beginning of Jesus' three-year ministry. They would carry on working to build the temple until AD 63, another 35 years later, making the total building time just over 80 years. The tragedy is that only uh, seven years after that, it was completely destroyed in the Jewish war. The destruction of the temple was one of the things that Jesus foresaw and prophesied would happen. But in John's Gospel, he's not talking about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple at all. The assumption that he is is a classic case of people misunderstanding Jesus, getting the wrong end of the stick which they do quite a lot in John's Gospel, where Jesus specialises in enigmatic sayings that people can never quite grasp. 
never quite get the point. They hear one thing and understand the wrong thing because they're not on Jesus' level. He's from heaven, they're from earth, and the understanding they need is lacking. But for the benefit of the readers of his gospel, John makes it clear, actually, Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. And you can understand how that works. The reference to three days gives the game away, really. Jesus was dead summer Friday, all day Saturday, and first thing Sunday morning. That counts to three days in the Jewish reckoning. Hence the reference to his own body as a temple, rather than the bricks and mortar structure in which they were located. But in what sense was Jesus' body a temple? Not in the modern sense where people talk about, you know, my body's a temple. We need to honour our bodies, to treat them with reverence and respect and not to pollute them by overindulgence. No, Jesus is saying that his body is a temple in the sense that where he was, God was. He was the embodiment of the presence of God in the world. God the Father completely indwelt God the Son through God the Holy Spirit. Claiming, if you like, that God indwelt him in a far more significant and meaningful way than God had ever or would ever indwell the physical temple, the building, in which this debate was taking place. Jesus was the presence of God <coughs> in the world, not this building that has sensibly erected to honour God's name. And Jesus knew that the day would come, three years down the line, when he'd be sentenced to death by the very religious leaders who were challenging him now. And he effectively throws down a gauntlet to them. Destroy this temple, my body, and I'll raise it in three days. It's kind of like, uh, you know, who's in charge? What temple we're talking about? They recognise, perhaps, that Jesus clearing all the paraphernalia out of the temple wasn't just a kind of, this, this marketplace shouldn't be happening here, but effectively the temple couldn't function without all that buying and selling going on because it was a place of sacrifice, so he brought all that to a halt. And many people rightly think that is a, a sign of God's judgement against the temple, if you like, a, a picture a demonstration of the way in which the temple would be destroyed. And Jesus in doing that is, is presaging God's act of judgement and destruction against the temple, and he's saying to the religious leaders who were based in the temple, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. But when God destroys your temple, what can you do about that? There's a shift from the temple physically as the building to the temple as Jesus, as the place where the real presence of God is. And destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days is a supreme demonstration of his authority over life and death. Only God has authority over life and death and Jesus in effect claims that authority for himself. As he puts it later in John's Gospel in chapter 10, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. He was in complete control of everything that happened to him. And when he stands before Pilate and doesn't say anything, and Pilate says, don't you know I've got the authority to put you to death? He says, no, the only authority you've got is what's been given to you by my Father in heaven. I'm in control 
of what is happening here. In complete control of what happens to him. And his enemies may destroy his body, but what happens only happens because he allows it to happen. He lays down his life and does so knowing he will take it up again. And when they destroy the temple of his body by putting him to death on the cross, he raises the temple of his body back to life on the third day to show that actually they have no power over him at all. The authority is his and his alone. And he says these words in answer to their question, by what authority are you doing these things? What rights do you have to, to call a halt to all the trading in the temple courts? What gives you the right to say what goes on in the temple of God? Jesus is saying, the supreme authority is mine. Because I have authority over life and death which comes from God. What miraculous sign can you show to prove that you have the authority to do all this? Actually, it will be the resurrection. The resurrection of this body after you have destroyed it. And that certainly was a miraculous sign. So we may conclude that Jesus has the authority to do what he's done, which was to close down the market that had been trading in the temple courts. How dare you turn my father's house into a market, he demanded them. And his disciples, years later, as they reflected on this incident, were tied in Psalm 69. That psalm that speaks of the suffering of God's righteous one, and which includes that verse, zeal for your house consumes me. So Jesus, when he saw all the trade going on in the temple, was filled with anger. And it was as if the temple precincts were no longer a holy place where people would gather to honour his father in worship. <coughs> was all that trade illegitimate? Should it not have been happening? Let's not forget that in those days, worship meant sacrifice, at least if you were worshipping in a temple. And sacrifice meant animals to kill. And if you wanted animals that would be suitable to honour God, then you wanted good quality animals for sale on site. You didn't want people bringing any kind of rubbish in uh, from, from the fields or from, from the herds. You wanted the best quality animals to be available for sacrifice, so you bought them on site. And to ensure that a right price was paid for a sacrificial animal, it was important that good quality coinage was used. So you weren't ripping gods off or, or, or buying an animal with, with coins that weren't really of the right quality, substandard coinage. They wouldn't let you get away with that, so you had to pay with good quality coinage. So all of that paraphernalia going on was part and parcel of the sacrificial system, which was set up to honour God, actually, through offering good quality animals, fairly bought and paid for, to, to have all the offerings that were prescribed in the Jewish law. And if the other Gospels suggest that the temple authorities were charging inflated prices, John in his Gospel gives us no indication that this was Jesus' problem with what was going on. So what was the issue, if all this buying and selling was the integral part of the temple process? Was Jesus saying that actually, God really is involved with that sacrifices? Sacrifice and offering I haven't desired. Looks for humble people, people who will honour him, people who will, will walk humbly with their God. Was he complaining that the noise and hubbub of the marketplace was such that prayer was impossible? 
for any foreign pilgrims who came to visit the temple. All this would have been going on in the court of the Gentiles, which was as far as any foreigner could get who come to worship God. All this business was going on. How could they possibly pray? Was that his issue with what was going on? Was he saying that what was going on in the temple meant that the temple had had its day? And from now on, people would only encounter God through him, the one who himself embodied the presence of God in a way that the temple never had and never would. All those are possible. And the thing about Jesus' actions is it's open to different kinds of interpretations. Yet I keep coming back to the citation of Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. And John and the disciples clearly saw that in some sense this verse was the key to Jesus' behaviour. Jesus was passionate about the temple, actually. He wasn't saying this is a waste of space. What he did, he did because he was zealous for God's house. It really mattered to him. And from what he said when he overturned all those tables and kicked all the traders out, it's clear that for him the temple was his father's house. And not a house of trade. It was supposed to be a building set aside to God and dedicated to the Lord. And yet with all that activity going on, somehow this goal of focusing upon God, which was supposed to be the only reason the building was in existence, had somehow been missed. Maybe he was picking up on the fact that Herod had built the temple because he thought it might legitimate him a bit as, as king of the Jews. And there was certainly a political reason for his grand architectural program that was on, on its undergoing. And yet Jesus went in there and where was God as the focus of it all? So much going on. And yet God was somehow missed. The God who was supposed to be the be-all and end-all of everything that was going on in his house. All the focus was on the trade. None of the focus was on God. All the focus was on the process. None of the focus was on the goal and the purpose of it all. So much activity, so little sight of God. And I, I reflect on that with all our busyness here at Brighton Road, our, our buildings that take so much of our time and money and our energy, so busy with a whole host of worthwhile things going on, and we need to be still in the midst of our business and remember that the be-all and end-all of all of this is God. The worship of God. <coughs> Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the only thing that should happen within these four walls is prayer, praise and Bible exposition. Far from it. Those of you who have been around a long time will notice that part of the vision for constructing these marvellous buildings was that they should be a resource for the community, and so they are. But let's not lose sight of the truth that everything we do here, we do for God. This place matters to us. Because God matters to us. And everything we do here, we do in his name and for his sake. Everything we do becomes an expression of worship to him. And it's easy for us in the business of all our activity to lose sight of that. If it's not all about God, we forget who we are, what we do and why we do it. Let's keep God as the focus. And actually that applies as much to what we do on a Sunday as to what it does to what we do midweek. The amount of work that goes into a service like this, the preparation and delivery of sermons and services, 
the practice and the playing of instruments and singing, the operation of the sound desk, the preparation and delivery of the media shout material for the projector, the welcoming, the praying, the refreshments, the clearing up at the end of the day, in the morning, the teaching of the children, the prayer ministry, the admin work to coordinate all, the preparation and printing of the bulletin, the large print service seats, the large print song sheets, the buying, the, the arranging, the distribution of flowers, the hive of activity that goes into Sunday services, the communion, the preparation of it, the washing up afterwards. The number of man hours and woman hours that are given gladly and voluntarily to make it all happen. And it's all for God. It's all for God. And if it's not all for God, it's a waste of time and energy. All of it is a means to an end so that God might be worshipped and glorified. And when we're under pressure and we're busy and there's so much going on, it's easy just to, to lose that dimension. But whatever we do, and I know we all work extremely hard in this place because we love and value and treasure this church, but whatever we do, we do it in an attitude of prayer. We say, Lord, this is for you. This is for you. This is for your sake. So when Jesus went to the temple in Jerusalem, he found his father's house to become a house of trade. Lots of stuff going on, all of it necessary, legitimate. But where was God? Where was the sense that all this business, all this activity was focused on God? It wasn't there. You Downton Abbey fans, and I know there are a few of you here tonight. Imagine what Downton Abbey would be like if all the servants had done their jobs without a thought of the one for whom they were doing it. They were devoted to their tasks because they were devoted to the master of the house. That was their motivation and inspiration and the reason why they did everything well. They were honouring the people they served and were pleased to do it. And here in Brighton Road we say, everything we do Lord, is for you. It's for you. That's why we do it to the best of our ability and that's why we want to serve you in our lives and in our, in our service. And it's not just a matter either of what goes on within these four walls on a Sunday or midweek. Jesus talked about his own body as a temple. He also said, didn't he, that by the Spirit he and his Father would make their home in our lives, which means that you, you also, are the temple of the living God. You also are sanctified. You also are made holy. Not just for an hour or so on a Sunday, but every day, every week. And that means outside of these four walls, everything we do, we do for him. Everything is an expression of prayer and worship. As we present our bodies as living sacrifices totally and acceptable to God, this is, this is true worship. This is our spiritual worship. And when Jesus looks at my life and yours, all of the busyness, all the activity, so much going on with all the hustle and bustle and demands of our, on our time, what goes on in the house of your soul, in the core of your being? Does he see a house of trade? Or does he see the house of his father? Because it's all centred on the presence of the living God in your heart. Don't become so busy that you lose sight of God. 
Don't have so much on your agenda that you forget who is the one you do it all for. Have our priorities become confused? Is God the focus of our lives or has he got squeezed out to the margins? Does Jesus need to overturn a few tables in our life? Or drive out a few things that have become more important to us than the God who should have pride of place before everything else? First and foremost, before he kind of chalks up all the things that we are doing for him, first and foremost, he wants our hearts not to be a place of busyness or activity, but our hearts to be the house of God, where he and his Father are welcomed in the Spirit and honoured and worshipped. Be still and know that he is God. That comes first. And everything else flows out from that. If it doesn't, then we have our priorities misaligned. And what authority does Jesus have to require this of us? The authority of the one who said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. The one who has absolute authority over life and death, absolute authority over you. The son of the living God, your creator, your redeemer and your Lord. The one who wants to make your life the temple of his heavenly Father. And where we've got it wrong, where we're sitting there thinking, ah, oh, just, yeah, yeah, my life is not as it should be. He's the one who raises us from death to life. He's the one who restores us. He's the one who gets us back to where we should be. Doesn't come to destroy us and pull us down. He comes to sort us out and get us straight and make us where we should be. So in a few moments of quiet, can I invite you to reflect on, on your heart and your life? We are all busy, busy people here. Have we lost that focus on God? Are there tables that Jesus wants to overturn? Are there things he wants to push out because they've become too important to us? Let's spend a moment in quiet. Lord, when we gave our lives to you, you made us the temple of the living God. You are pleased to indwell us. Where our minds have become overwhelmed by the agendas that demand our attention. where our hearts have been weighed down by the pressures of the immediate rather than the important. 
Lord, reset us. Refocus us on yourself. Thank you that you loved us enough to go to the cross to redeem us. Precisely because we get it wrong. And you knew we would get it wrong. You laid down your life. Taking from us everything which is wrong. And putting us right. Thank you for going to the cross to bear my sin. Thank you for laying down your life for my sake. And we worship you as the one who took up your life again to be Lord of all. Jesus, be Lord of our lives. Be Lord of this church. So that all we do might be for your glory.